Listener Production. When something horrific happens in your life, do you bury it to move on or use it for good as your way of moving forward? I don't think we could have sort of imagined these changes a few years ago, even before my case, or I just don't see this happening and being received in in such a positive way. So that's the voice of Saxon Mullins who we're interviewing in this episode. In 2013, on a night out in King's Cross, a devastating encounter in a laneway changed the course of her life. Yeah, it led to a rape case that went on for five years. There were two trials, two appeals, and ultimately it was determined that the accused was acquitted after he argued he had reasonable grounds to believe she was consenting. Now here we are, eight years on, and Saxon Mullen's story has led to the introduction of new laws that could protect other victims who freeze during sex. So you'll get the full story in today's briefing. It is the 1st of December. Here are today's headlines. Dutch authorities have discovered the Omicron variant was active in the Netherlands before that variant was first reported by South Africa to the World Health Organization. So there were two Dutch samples uh, of Omicron that were taken between the 19th and 23rd of November, but it was only the 24th that South Africa reported it to the World Health Organization. Gosh, this is interesting, isn't it? It was thought that cases on two flights from South Africa on Sunday were the first cases of the variant in Europe. So I guess, Tom, this raises big questions about where and how this variant has been spreading until now. Yeah, meanwhile, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison has said there'll be no more lockdowns in response to Omicron. We're not going back to lockdowns. None of us want that. That's for sure. (laughs) Well, we don't want it, but of course, lockdowns are a state issue. So, I mean, the state premiers have said they're on board with this, but hopefully nothing changes. And I guess we can't predict the future there. Uh, We've reached six cases of Omicron now. One of the new cases found in New South Wales was active in the community. So that's a bit of a worry. Yeah. So this woman in her 30s had come back from South Africa last week and she'd visited several venues in Sydney and the Central Coast. So December 1 is today and that is also significant if you're living in Western Australia and you are an unvaccinated mining worker, a firefighter or a police officer because today's the day that your employer can stand you down under the mandate requirements in that state. Also, Tom, here in Queensland where I live, it was announced yesterday by the Premier that uh, teachers are going to be part of that mandate. This kicks in the day before the start of next year's school year. So schools are already warning that this is going to throw the start of school for next year into chaos. Yeah, unless those teachers just get vaccinated. Indeed. (laughs) One in three staff at Parliament House Canberra have been sexually harassed, according to a landmark workplace report. It's appalling and disturbing. I wish I found them more surprising, but I find them just as appalling. That's the Prime Minister talking about the review's findings. The review, launched in the wake of the Brittany Higgins allegations and conducted by Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins, found women experienced sexual harassment at a higher rate to men at 40% compared to 26% and that the issues were driven by power imbalances, gender inequality and exclusion and a lack of accountability. Yeah, the report makes 28 recommendations, which is a few. This includes codes of conduct for MPs and staffers. Yeah, and as Scott Morrison said, one in three people being sexually harassed is a terrible figure, but sadly, it's actually in line with the national average. You would, though, from our leaders in federal parliament, expect a bit better. 
Human remains have been discovered in the search for the missing couple in the Victorian high country. The Melbourne campers Russell Hill and Carol Clay haven't been seen since March last year and their family is desperate for answers. So this discovery of human remains was made yesterday afternoon in a search zone about 50 k's from the campsite where the couple were last seen. Police have spent the week there using excavation equipment to sift through soil And they say that after this discovery, it will take some time to work out if the remains are from the missing couple. So this development comes after former Jetstar pilot Greg Lynn was last week charged with two counts of murder in relation to the camper's disappearance. Around 1,000 residents in southeast Queensland are being told to evacuate due to flooding. It's people in the Darling Downs town of Inglewood who received those evacuation alerts last night. Authorities are warning flooding could impact the whole town with local dams overflowing. So this comes after emergency services rescued the driver from a semi-trailer caught in floodwaters near the New South Wales border. 20 flood warnings were in place across New South Wales as of yesterday. The SES has been delivering supplies to homes cut off by flooding in the New South Wales central and western regions. It's been a crazy rain event. There were evacuations in central New South Wales around Forbes last week. So this rain has just kept coming and and coming. That La Nina um, Mm. news has really sort of played out quite quickly. The trial of Ghislaine Maxwell began in New York overnight, pretty sensationally, actually. Uh, The prosecution put a pilot on the stand. Now, he flew planes for convicted child sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, who was Ghislaine Maxwell's former partner. He said Maxwell was Epstein's number two and would book him to fly the aircraft called... uh, Lolita Express to destinations like Epstein's Caribbean Island hideaway. The pilot's name is Lawrence Vesosky Jr. and he's testifying for the government. He said Maxwell was responsible for booking the flights, the payment and the expenses. Maxwell, of course, is on trial accused of recruiting underage girls for Epstein to sexually abuse. And Australia has hit back at claims its peacekeeping forces are intervening in the Solomon Islands to help keep the country's Prime Minister in power. This is a policing matter and we've made it very clear that we are not there to participate at all in domestic political matters. That's Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews speaking to the ABC. 100 Aussie police and troops are in the Solomons to help quell the violence from last week where buildings were burned down and three people were killed. But the leader of the Solomons, Malaita province, has accused Australian forces of holding up a corrupt leadership by being there. Okay, right after this message, our interview with Saxon Mullins. It's been called a major win for victim survivors of sexual assault. Last week, New South Wales brought in new affirmative consent laws, which set clearer boundaries for consensual sex and reinforced that consent should never be presumed, but clearly communicated. And the case that sparked the laws involves Saxon Mullins. Eight years ago, she was on a night out in Sydney. She was 18 when she lost her virginity in the back alley of a nightclub. Saxon Mullins has always maintained that what happened to her was rape. There wasn't any request. It was a demand from someone I had never met before in a dark alleyway alone, and I was scared. The harrowing legal process went for five years, and then when it was over, she revealed her identity for the first time by telling her story on the ABC's Four Corners, The day after it went to air, the New South Wales Attorney General promised law reform 
And now here it is. So what do these laws mean and could they be rolled out Australia-wide? Saxon, thanks so much for joining us. After the hell you went through, how important was it for you personally to use your experience to drive a change like this one? I think it was really important for me in sort of my healing as well as like understanding what had happened to me. You know, my case was quite publicised when it first happened. Of course, though, I was not named and that was a really um, weird feeling, I think. And so for me, sort of going through the whole court process and realising that there's more to sexual assault than just the assault, there are so many things that happen afterwards that we could be doing better. I think it really opened my eyes and speaking out and telling my story and sort of trying to push that change was really important for me. So when the New South Wales Attorney General Mark Speakman introduced these new laws around affirmative consent, he singled you out for extraordinary bravery, tireless advocacy. How involved were you in in pushing for these laws? Because after that night in King's Cross eight years ago, you first had to go through two trials and two appeals. You had a lot to deal with there. When did the journey around campaigning for these legal changes happen and how involved were you in it? So uh, when I came forward on Four Corners with my story in 2018, the New South Wales Attorney General the next day announced a review into the consent laws in New South Wales. Since then, I had been kept in the loop quite closely about sort of what was happening with the Law Reform Commission. While that was all going on, I joined forces with some amazing experts, Dr. Rachel Bergen and Professor Jonathan Crow, and we formed an advocacy group, Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy. We were living and breathing reviews and consent laws and things like that. So we did submissions to a lot of reviews, not just New South Wales, but Queensland and Victoria as well. And just trying to raise awareness, not only in the public, sort of about what affirmative consent is, how it works, that kind of thing, but also with lawmakers, with those people in parliament to say, you know, this is what we need and and anything less won't be good enough. Can you explain for us exactly how these new laws work? Affirmative consent just means that uh, in New South Wales, consent needs to be actively sought and actively communicated. So in New South Wales, if you want to rely on the defence that you had an honest and reasonable belief in somebody else's consent, you now have to show that you either said or did something to seek that consent. So the idea of silence or many victims freeze in the act of a a sexual assault, that will not be taken as consent. You need to ask or do something to ascertain where the other person is consenting. That's sort of how it works in the law, but really how it works between two people is just that if you want to have sex with somebody, you ask if they want to have sex with you. If you want to engage in a sexual act with somebody, you ask if they would like to do the same thing. You know, when we talk about it in practice, really, most people are already doing it exactly that way. You know, I think Mm -hmm. affirmative consent can sometimes seem like this legal name, something that, you know, this massive threshold, these massive hoops you have to jump through, but it's not how it works. It's just having a conversation with your partner and most people are already engaging in that. Is a big part of it really getting around that, that issue of when someone freezes, when they're really uncomfortable or scared? Absolutely. And I think it's always better to just check what the other person is feeling, keeping in touch with your partner, Mm. how everyone's going. And I think it's so easy to not have those experiences where someone says, oh, well, I thought they were consenting and just get rid of any of that confusion, any of that doubt. From studies, we know how common it is in sexual violence cases to freeze. So we don't want someone to have to go through that sort of thing. I think freezing when you are the victim 
and you have frozen, it does bring along a lot of complicated feelings about what maybe you should have done or how you felt maybe you should have reacted. And we don't want people to go through that. It's a really normal reaction. And so I think having this in law really says that it's up to the person who wants to engage in the sexual act to make sure the other person wants to be there. It's not on the victim to try and get away. Yeah, so this kind of strikes to the heart of the challenge in prosecuting sexual assault is that lack of tangible evidence and the fact that it often ends up being the case in court that it's one person's word against the other. Um, This seems like the weakest link with these new laws, that it's a matter of verbally checking in with someone. So what's to stop someone from lying about that in court? I guess the question is, what's to stop anyone lying in any court case? You know, we kind of can't put these barriers in to say, well, you need to sign a contract or you need to have this hard evidence because that's just not how people engage in sexual acts. And we're not trying to put these crazy sort of parameters, this massive threshold you need to meet that will ensure that, you know, anything that falls outside of that is a criminal act. That's not what we're doing. We're just making sure that people understand how these laws interact with each other and how we engage in these acts. But I think what's important in these sexual assault cases and what we see a lot is that a lot of rape myths are taken into the courtroom, whether it's by the judge, whether it's by the jury, about how a victim should respond or how a victim should act or how they should seem afterwards. And I think that goes some way to credibility because that's how really we're determining these factors. That's how we're determining sort of who we're going to believe in this. In your advocacy work, what do you reckon those grey areas still are when it comes to consent? I think people's understanding of consent is still a massive issue. You know, we don't have comprehensive reality, relationship and sexuality education. And so when I'm explaining sort of what affirmative consent is, everyone knows that everyone gets it, but it's not what we're being taught from the very beginning. Introducing these things later is is important and it goes some of the way, but I think having that understanding from a very early age and not just about sexual consent, but about healthy relationships, about your relationship with your body, a whole area of knowledge I think we are missing when we're going through the schooling system. So I think that is a massive, massive part of sort of where these miscommunications come in. Coupling with changing laws and having affirmative consent around Australia, I think we really need to be investing in prevention, investing in that education. So how will these new laws work when someone's drunk or impaired by drugs? Will that make any difference when it plays out in court? It's the same as it previously was in New South Wales. If a victim is uh, intoxicated, they cannot legally give consent. And if an accused is intoxicated, that is not sort of brought into the trial. So that aspect of it hasn't changed. When people say that, oh, this sort of criminalises consensual behaviour, I think a lot of the time what they're referring to is, you know, people going out on the town, having a good night and going home together. If you're going out with someone or if you're meeting someone for the first time on a night out, you need to be sure that they want to be with you, regardless of, you know, levels of intoxication. You need to be careful. You need to be sure. And that's not a, you know, ridiculous hoop to jump through. I think just checking that the person is of sound mind wants to actually do this with you. You know, it's not the last night on earth. You'll have other chances. It's just being careful. What's happening in other states? Are they working towards similar consent reforms? So Tasmania has had this affirmative consent laws for 
many, many years. And Victoria just recently announced that next year they will be legislating for affirmative consent as well, which is very exciting. Victoria has had many reviews into this section of the law and never just gone that step far enough to legislate for affirmative consent. So to see that come through is, is really great. We'll wait to see the legislation It's because it's really important how these are implemented, but it's a fantastic step forward. And unfortunately, those are our only states with or planning to have affirmative consent laws. It's still an amazing achievement. You know, potentially you've got the two most popular states in Victoria and New South Wales plus Tassie. It's a, a very good start. How does all this leave you feeling, thinking the big picture of your experience eight years ago, everything you've been through, where things are heading? How are you feeling now? It definitely changes day to day on whether I'm feeling optimistic or not. But I think, you know, for the most part, I'm feeling so optimistic. I don't think we could have sort of imagined these changes a few years ago, even before my case, or I just don't see this happening and being received in in such a positive way. There are, of course, people who don't agree with it, but I feel that the majority of people do agree and do see that this is just common sense. It goes back to the Australian public believing people like Grace Tame and listening to advocates and to survivors and experts around these things. I, I, I do wonder if this would have happened so easily a few years ago. So I mm. think it shows how far we've come. I imagine, you know, going through something like that, part of you must want to never talk about it again. And then another part of you wants to make sure that something good comes out of something bad. Do you sometimes wrestle with how much of your, your time, emotion and energy you put into this part of your life? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is a lot of hard work and it's also a lot of emotional labour. You know, it's not just a a quick interview here or there. I am talking about a really tough topic Mm -hmm. and it's really tough for people to hear about as well. It's had great results. I can't escape that. It's definitely had great results. So, of course, I would do it over again in the exact same way. But um, it is really tough. And I think one of the other things people sort of don't think about is that it is pretty embarrassing. It's really a personal moment that Mm. I'm sort of sharing with thousands of people on the daily. Is there a part of you that wants to never talk about it again? Yes, absolutely. I would love to go to a podcast that sort of talks about maybe the first season of Glee. I would be very down for that. Um, what else are you into? What else? Tell us more about Saxon Mullins outside yeah. of this whole story. Well, yes, maybe I should have started with Glee. No one, no one will, will want to know anything else about me ever again. But, um, well, unfortunately, I don't even have any better opinions than that. You know, I like really terrible musicals. As, as shown with Glee. I like football. I like... What, what I, kind of football? Soccer, football. Oh. I, I went to see the Matildas the other day, yes, in the rain because I love them that much. Wow, that's committed. I know. And then they lost, so they really, they did me dirty. But yeah, you know, there, there are definitely many aspects to me and, and to all survivors. And I think that is something that sometimes people forget. So my hope is that one day I don't have to talk about this because there's nothing left to talk about. All Australian states have affirmative consent. Um, We are actively dealing with this sexual violence crisis in Australia. And then someone can be like, hey, what do you think of the first episode of Glee? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've handled yourself with such dignity and a little bit of humour as well, which is great. So um, well done on everything you've done so far. And thanks for speaking to us. No, thanks for having me. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we explore the theory that the Omicron variant could be the pathway out of the pandemic.
listener.